0: In John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, if you haven't had an opportunity to read that, I exhort you to read that. In his book, Pilgrim's Progress, two characters, the main character, Christian, and another hopeful, a friend of his, as they are on their journey to the celestial city, begin to have a conversation with one another and say to themselves, to prevent drowsiness in this place, let us fall into good discourse. Christian inquired, brother, where shall we begin? And hopeful answered, where God began with us. Then Christian sang this song, when saints to sleepy grow, let them come hither and hear how these two pilgrims talk together, yea, let them learn of them in any wise, thus to keep open their drowsy, slumbering eyes, saints fellowship if it be managed well, keeps them awake, and that in spite of hell. We wonder what Christian was getting on about there in this passage. What was Bunyan's point? Well, what Bunyan had seen and what many of us feel, like Peter and the disciples, that we can often become drowsy, sleepy in our faith. We can be like Peter and the James and John who quickly fell asleep that night in Gethsemane. And so Bunyan exhorts us to find a friend and have good discourse, to stay awake. What I want to think about this morning in God's Word is how do we fight temptation? How do we fight the temptation to fall asleep? Not literal sleep, but spiritually asleep. That's what we want to give ourselves to think about today in God's Word. Turn with me to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14. and verse 32. If you don't have a Bible, I just encourage you to grab that one that's in front of you. Open it up to page 851. And follow along with us in God's Word. My goal this morning is for you to see God's Word and not my words. Mark chapter 14 beginning in verse 32. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And Jesus said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping. For their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It's enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Understand the context of this passage. We've been walking through chapter 14 for the last few weeks and it's always helpful when you're reading God's Word just to get yourself oriented within the passage. And one of the things we understand with this passage is this falls within the, the sort of the final days of Jesus' life. And, and really, most literally, the final hours of Jesus' life. If you were to just turn the page over, you'll see that Jesus is going to be arrested. Jesus is going to be tried. Jesus is ultimately going to be convicted. And then, all, then he's going to be hung upon the cross for a crime he didn't commit and then Mark ends his gospel that glorious scene in the resurrection, where the tomb is empty and the women run away afraid. We need to see that Jesus has spent the better part of his day with his disciples. The chapter began with Jesus uh, sending out his disciples and preparing them for the Passover. And they had that intimate meal. And in Mark's gospel, it's just sort of a, a snapshot, a real click, you know, sort of a, a real quick picture of what happened. But If you turn to John, you'll see it it contains almost really five chapters as as you see Jesus not only being with His disciples and and serving them and washing their feet and praying with them and encouraging them, but also praying. He has that beautiful high priestly prayer in John 17 where, where Jesus prays for His disciples and then goes out to Gethsemane. Jesus has had... This intimate time of fellowship. This, this closeness with his disciples. But, but as we saw last week, they're all going to fall away. Or as we see right here in verse 50. Look with me to verse 50. That little verse. And, and they all left him and fled. A really sad picture of these disciples. These ones who, who claim just, just minutes before that, Jesus, we are ready to die with you. We are going to die with you, Jesus, if we have to. We are ready. Peter's got his sword out. He's ready to chop off ears. He is ready for this. But they all left him and fled. The whole chapter is taken up with this theme of, of, of betrayal and, and abandonment. And, and what we see then, where, where really we've been thinking through in God's word about how Jesus was abandoned by those closest to him, What we come to in this passage is to see that Jesus wasn't just abandoned by his friends, his disciples, but he was abandoned by the Father. And we hear echoing in this garden the cry on Calvary, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We begin to see in this passage this perfect God-man, the one who had done nothing to deserve the wrath of God. Jesus was sinless. The guy had done nothing to to merit the kind of of pain that he's feeling. One who's never even literally touched sin before has laid open before his eyes the sorrow and pain of sin. and begins to feel the crushing weight. The one that Paul said knew no sin, but became sin. So that in Him, we might become the righteousness of God. Friends, what Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 5.21, we see played out before our eyes in Gethsemane. The focus is clear. The hour has come. Jesus will die, not for His own sin, but for the sins of others. So what is the point of this passage? What is the point of this sermon? Jesus Christ suffered the sorrow of sin and the agony of God's wrath so that you could be set free from sin and so that you could have an example of daily dependence upon God. Jesus Christ In His humanity, the divine Son of God suffered the sorrow of sin. He suffered the sorrow of sin and the agony of God's wrath so that you could be set free. Set free from sin and shame and so that you could see an example of what it looks like to depend upon God in troubling times. That's what we want to think. Give ourselves to. So our passage lays on us three necessities. So three necessities. Sort of the outline this morning. First. You need to take sin seriously. You need to take sin seriously. Second. You need to remember the costliness of your salvation. You need to remember the costliness of your salvation. And then thirdly. You need to understand how to flee temptation. How to flee temptation. So let's look at this first point we see in this passage. You need to take sin seriously. Look with me again at the sorrow of Jesus. Look at how Jesus is is weeping. What's going on here? Why is Jesus so uh, troubled? Mark tells us that He began to be greatly troubled and distressed. Luke tells us that the Garden of Gethsemane was a regular place that Jesus went with His disciples. This was an ordinary thing. This wasn't abnormal. It's not as if there was something about this place that brought this on. No, He regularly went there with His disciples to be with His Father and to to pray with His disciples. And what we see though, something is happening. Something is changing. What is happening is God is beginning to lay open before Jesus our sin. Remember, Jesus was sinless. Jesus uh, had never seen sin. The Bible makes clear that God is too holy to look upon sin. He's not like us. He he didn't see the the sorrow of sin, the, the pain of sin, the hurt of sin. He'd never seen that before. And here in the garden we begin to see his eyes are open to the pain of suffering. This Jesus was not only fully God, but fully man. And what we see is Jesus' humanity suffering under the weight of sin. Jesus is feeling what it feels like to be a depraved human being. He is feeling what you feel every day. Jesus isn't just feeling the weight of one man's sin, yours, but the sins of all those who would ever turn from their sins and trust. Jesus is feeling the weight and sorrow of the sins of the whole world, John says. Look at it. He begins to be greatly distressed. And these are strong words. Greatly distressed. Not just a little distress. He's not like, man, this is going to stink. No, this is great distress and trouble. And he tells his disciples in verse 34, my soul is very sorrowful. Not a little sorrowful, but very, very sorrowful. It is awful. And he goes and and he says in verse 35, he goes a little further, he falls on the ground. The weight of of the sin is so great. The sorrow is so great. And it's the sorrow of your sin. My sin. This is what he's feeling in, in his soul. The sorrow was for sin. But we must be clear, it was not for his sin. Jesus is feeling the horror of sin, the ugliness of sin. We could, we could really just really heap up all the adjectives we could think of to think of sin, and it is great. The English language is just sort of limited in this way. Or How do you qualify? How do you understand what was happening? We can't we see something of the exclusivity of Christ in this is that that it took the God-man to do this. Unspeakable things. Sins that aren't even whispered. Murderous thoughts. Lies. Deceptions. Lust. Wickedness. All of this was being laid upon Jesus. This evil was being opened to his eyes. And it broke it. John, excuse me, Luke tells us that Jesus was so sorrowful that he began to sweat like drops of blood. We don't know what that means. Are we to take that literally, or was that just sort of figuratively? Uh, it really doesn't matter. It was awful. The pain was was terrible, and Jesus is feeling the, the sorrow over sin. But not only that, we see Jesus also feeling the agony of God's wrath. The agony of the wrath of God. His Father, the Eternal Father and the Eternal Son, their relationship is being strained and stretched and broken because of sin. Remember, God is too holy to look upon sin. And here as He places the sin upon His Son, the Father begins to turn away from His Son. begins to pour out the punishment of sin. Mark tells us He goes a little farther. He falls on the ground and He prays that if it were possible, the hour might pass from Him. This hour is great. This hour is excruciating painful in a way that we as humans will never understand because of our finite minds and we will never fully grasp the, the agony that the infinite God felt when the triune God who had existed eternally in union began to break away because of sin and not because of their own sin but because of our sin begins to Populate questions. Why? Why would the eternal God, who existed for all of eternity in the past in in wonderful unity and love and communion, want to, to jeopardize that for rebels and wicked folks like us? Why would God do such a thing? Because of his love for his people. This is why Jesus came, as Mark tells us in Mark 10.45. Jesus says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. And so Jesus is there agonizing over the pain of God's wrath for our sin. And brothers and sisters, what we begin to see clearly is that we cannot be casual about sin. When we see something of the seriousness of sin... We, we see something of the costliness of sin, but really the seriousness first. Sin is not something that God just sort of brushes away. And you need to understand that when God forgives sin, He only can do that because He has dealt with your sin. He's punished your sin. God, as we've said often, is not like a grandpa, you know, grandma, just like, you know, it's all right, sonny. Uh, Sometimes you make mistakes and it's all right. No. God is too holy for that. God God cannot do that. God does not just sort of sweep sin away. When we understand that that Old Testament passage we quote a lot, you know, he he throws our sin as far as the east is from the west. (laughs) Right? mean he just kind of pushes it out of the side, out of mind, right? That's what we think. Out of sight, out of mind. That's how we act a lot, right? Sin, out of sight, out of mind. It's not a problem if I can't see it. No, he doesn't do that. And that is what's so beautiful about the cross of Christ. He doesn't just, just sort of push our sin away so that it can come crawling back out again. But rather what he does is he punishes his own son for our sin. And so Jesus cries in verse 36, Father, Remove this cup from me. This cup. What, what cup? Jesus had like a little goblet out there with him. Take take this. I don't want this anymore, God. What does he mean? Well, well clearly what Jesus is meaning is the wrath of God. So listen to Isaiah 51.17 7, as an example. There's many others in the Old Testament that sort of point to cup being a sort of metaphor, reference to the God's wrath. Isaiah writes, Wake yourself. Wake yourself. Stand up, O Jerusalem. You who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of His wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. Just listen to what Isaiah says there. The cup of God's wrath is so strong that they stagger as they fall to the ground. We see Isaiah 51 fulfilled before our eyes here in Gethsemane. Jesus is staggering under the weight of God's wrath. God is pouring out His wrath and Jesus in His humanity is crying out, Lord, deliver me. I remember as a child, my brother and I were out doing what only boys can do, getting in trouble. And I remember one night we were out. It got late. Brother and I got separated. And uh, I was kind of out in the, we were out in the woods and brother and I got separated, and one of those situations where as I got into the woods, I just kind of got deeper and deeper into the woods, and as I got deeper and deeper into the woods, I became more and more disoriented, more and more lost, if you will. The only thing that I could see in the sky was, was sort of the silhouette of the of the of the moon you know how in some nights that sort of misty air kind of covers the moon it gives you a little bit of light but just enough to kind of make trees look like monsters right and as a child i can remember the feeling it was it was cold and it was dark i was afraid i didn't know how to get home i was lost i, I was completely confused as to as to where to go and And as I looked up, I wondered where was home, where perhaps you've been in a place like that, cold and dark, afraid, fearful. You can feel your hands shaking with fear. Friends, that's where Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane. He was in a dark place. His father was turning away from him. He knew where he was, though. He knew exactly where he was. And he went there for you and for me. And it's a reminder that we must take sin seriously. For our sin was a great cost. Brothers, I hope you see the seriousness of sin. As the Puritans used to say, the sinfulness of sin. Sin is vile and wicked. You know, we tend to look at our past sins with fondness. We look back and we're like, yeah, it was cool. But sin was so costly. As we look into our Savior's eyes that night and see the agony that He felt. As we see the pain that He endured for our sin. We find joy. Now we may weep over sin. But what we understand ultimately is there is joy in this sorrow. There is joy because Christ has taken All of our sin. Past, present, and future. He's taken all of it. There's no sin left. There's there's no punishment left for God to exact upon your life. All of God's wrath has been drank. And there's joy in that. Jesus was crushed for your iniquities. Brothers and sisters, as we consider the necessity to take sin seriously, we must also in this passage see that we are to remember the costliness of your salvation and my salvation. We must remember that our salvation was costly. As we've already spoken, our salvation cost Jesus the relationship with his Father. Look with me again at verse 36. A much ado about nothing has been made about this passage. And so let's try to make clear where others have given us a fog. Verse 36 says, And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup, yet not what I will, but what you will. We understand from this passage that that our salvation cost Jesus the relationship he had with his Father. And notice the relationship there in the passage. Abba, Father. Now, what does Abba mean? Let's get straight. It doesn't mean Daddy. Okay? It doesn't mean that. So if a well-meaning preacher told you that, sorry. Um, he was wrong. Love him to death, but he was wrong. It doesn't mean Daddy, but it does mean intimacy. Abba was an Aramaic word that means father. We're not just father. We don't go around saying father, right? And and so in our language, we might say dad. That communicates well. It wasn't a childish sort of crying out daddy, but rather a reverent call of intimacy. Father. My father. The way he leads his disciples to pray. In the Lord's Prayer, my Father who art in heaven, my Father, Father. Nobody called God Father. Very rarely did a Jew ever do that. And so we see something of the relationship, the unique relationship that God had with, that to me Jesus had with God the Father. And as we said earlier, we must understand that this relationship was strained under the weight of sin. While your salvation cost Jesus, his relationship. With His Father, by it, you gained a heavenly Father. What cost Jesus, you gained. This is why we sing regularly that theme. His loss, but our gain. That is the great exchange of the gospel. Jesus lost, we get everything. Jesus lost everything, we get everything. That's what's so wonderful. As Paul writes in Romans 8, For you do not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you receive the spirit of adoption as sons and daughters, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. So Jesus' Abba, Father relationship in this passage, through the Gospel, becomes our Abba, Father relationship with the Father. We, We begin to have the same relationship Jesus has with His Father we have with Him. We become sons and daughters with Christ, as Paul wrote in Galatians 4, 6. And, you be, and because you are sons, you are sons. Notice Paul emphasizes you are. There's no doubt in Paul's mind that those who are Christians are sons of God. God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. What a joy that is. What a relief to know that when we go to God, we cry to him as Abba, Father. What we see also in this passage is that Jesus, what our salvation cost, was the obedient life of Jesus. Notice what Jesus says in that passage through the latter half of verse 36. Yet not what I will, but what you will. In the midst of agony and sorrow as a human being, Jesus was fully God and fully man, but yet he was fully man. He had had feelings just like we did. It's just like us. The author of Hebrews makes that very clear. He's like us in every way. Jesus was fully human and Jesus there is feeling the weight of sin and he's like, father, if there's another way if there's like plan B like you know let's let's put let's roll that out right now. let's get it ready Plan B uh, the cross is a little freaky. it's scary. your wrath scares me. But notice and I think it's good not to linger on that butt yet yeah, not what I will, but what you will. No. no. I'm ready. The hours come. I'm ready. It's enough, he says. I'm ready to go to the cross. I'm ready. Your will be done. The f- Jesus was obedient. And so the great exchange. His life for your life. You, not only are forgiven sin, but are credited with his obedience. The obedience we see in this passage. So we must understand that the cross cost us much. Does his life give you joy? Does does this cause your heart to lift sort of from a state of depression and melancholy? Do you sort of lift high and say, Lord, went to the cross for me. Jesus died for my sins. That's the measure of his love for me. of the cross, you don't have to fear death. You don't have to be like the world who worries when you grow older and your bones begin to hurt and your muscles begin to deteriorate and cancer ravishes your body. You know that that is but temporary. It is but temporary. And there will come a day, a a very short day. A day will come when the pain and sorrow of this life will be no more. His death won that victory for you and for me. And may we worship and endure Christ for this today. May we adore Christ. brothers and sisters, may we also see That the costliness of sins is a means to prevent sin. A means to avert sin. If you'll just remember in the midst of sin, what this sin will cost. What it costs Jesus. Let the screams of Jesus that night be in your ears. As He cries. Abba, remove the wrath from me. I am innocent. I did nothing wrong. Let that be in your ear as a means to flee from sin. Let us remember that our salvation cost the eternal God. Let's look at this third and final point. We must remember, or excuse me, we must understand How to flee temptation. Ones that we have not really considered in this passage this morning has been the disciples. They've been kind of in the background. And like the rest of Mark's gospel, Mark likes to make the the disciples look like fools. Because they are. Where Jesus is faithful, where Jesus is over here crying over the agony and pain and sorrow of sin, and God's wrath, they're over there taking a nap. Mark makes clear that Jesus is most likely just a, an earshot away from the disciples. They're over there napping, and Jesus is crying. Crying out to God, deliver me. And Notice what Jesus says to them in verse 37. And he came and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Now as you think about this passage, I want you to think about it in light of what Peter said. Uh, just a few minutes, but, you know, maybe a couple hours earlier, look with me back over to verse 29. Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. If I must die with you, I will not deny you. Jesus comes and he says, Peter, I thought you were willing to die. And here you are. You, you can't even say awake an hour. What do you mean by what you say that you're going to die with me? How are you going to be able to die with me if you can't even stay awake? And so Jesus exhorts his disciples in verse 38, Watch and pray that you may not enter to temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And we see Jesus went back and forth three times. He exhorted his disciples to watch and pray that they may not enter to temptation. So we're going to spend the rest of our time just kind of briefly moving through temptation. And this exhortation to watch and pray. How do we flee temptation? First, what is temptation? There is considerable confusion over this matter. Uh, Many believe temptation is sin. That is not true. Jesus, uh, the author of Hebrews tells us, was tempted in every way we are, yet without sin. And so you can be tempted, but yet not Fall in to temptation. And notice what Jesus says. Do not enter into temptation. So that is in a sense that temptation can be on the outlier trying to draw you in. And so let's use John Owen here, a Puritan pastor from a few hundred years ago, but who gives us a very helpful definition. He writes, A temptation then, in general, is anything that for any reason exerts a force or influence to seduce and draw the mind and heart of man from the obedience which God requires of him and it draws him away to any kind of sin. I'll read that again. A temptation then in general is anything that for any reason exerts a force or influence to seduce and draw the mind and heart of man from The obedience which God requires of him to any kind of sin. Owen says anything. It could be anything. Temptations come in various forms. They don't just come in in one form. This is why Paul writes, "Um, when we face temptation, we must understand that temptation is common. Uh, There is no uh, sort of uncommon temptations. Uh, Temptations come in various forms. What causes one man to fall may not cause another man to fall. What is a pothole to one may be a Grand Canyon to another. And so we don't want to just sort of blanketly say like, oh, that's good, no problem there. When we understand that anything can draw us away from God. We live in a fallen world and there are many traps That Satan has laid. Oh, and also said that it could be for any reason. You know, oftentimes we try to understand. We try to like reverse engineer temptation. We try to understand temptation. We try to get behind it and understand where where it's coming from. Look, temptation is going to come for various reasons and various means. We're not going to fully understand sort of that. We need to understand that it's coming. We need to understand there is a reality that today, even even right now, as you sit in this room, you might think that you're immune in here. But, but friend, let me remind you, you are not immune in here. Even more so, in here, are you not immune? Because Satan would love in this moment to capture your mind and drag it elsewhere. Your belly's rumbling and thinking about food and thinking about your plans for today and you know maybe some good things going on later in your life and that's what your mind is on. Rather than God. And so temptations can come for any reason at any time. And he says that it can exert a force or influence. I love that. A force or influence. Look, what Owen is saying is don't mess around with, with temptation. <laughs> don't nuzzle up to it. Flirt with it. Hmm. I wonder how close I can get before I fall. How close to the edge can I get? How much of it can I touch before you know, the saying is, is old and maybe trite, but if you mess with fire, you're, eventually you're going to get burned. Well, friend, if you mess around with sin, you will get burned. You will get burned. It's trying to get you, it's trying to influence you. It's, so, so, so the exhortation then is don't play around with sin. Don't mess around with it. Don't let it linger. Don't let it flirt around in your mind. He says it seduces and draws the mind away from Christ. Seduces. What a captivating word. That temptation. It seduces us. Friend, you must see the goal of temptation. The goal of temptation. You must understand this. Temptation, desire, is for you. And your mind. Once your mind. Because if it can capture your mind, it can capture your heart. And if we back up just a little bit from the mind, if it can get your eyes. It knows that it can get your mind. Oh, we see so many things. And what we see affects what we think. And what we think affects our hearts. Satan desires you, just as he desired Peter, to sift you like wheat. He desires for you to fall. He wants you all to himself. He hates it when you glory in Christ Jesus. He is a glory thief, and he wants to steal you away. And we must remember this. Brothers and sisters, he wants your mind. And so we must guard our mind. We must protect what we put in our brains, what we think about, what we give ourselves to. Our minds are important. And then ultimately he writes, to any kind of sin, to any kind of sin. Temptation manifests itself in one form, but it may produce something else. A lustful thought may produce adultery. Something as casual as a, a passing look bears the fruit of adultery. We must not think that temptation will always manifest the same way or the same sins. This is why we must always be on our guard and alert for the ever changing tactics of the enemy. goal that Satan has for you is to rebel against God. That's what he wants. He doesn't care how you do it. He just cares you do it. He doesn't care how much you do it. He just cares you do it. So we must grasp and understand what temptation is. So how do we flee it? Jesus exhorts his disciples not to enter into temptation. Now look at verse 38 again, and notice the two means God has given his people to fight against temptation, or as a means to to flee temptation. He says, watch and pray. Watch and pray. Jesus provides us these two ways to first stay alert to our sin and weaknesses. Stay alert to it. And then secondly, depend on God in prayer. First, stay alert, he says. Stay alert to sin and weaknesses. Look, we've already kind of made fun of Peter, uh, you know, his strength. Uh, I'll die with you, Jesus. Simon, really, you're sleeping Ready? I mean, I thought you we were ready to die. What we see here is that the weakness of Peter is a reminder of our own need to stay alert. Alert to sin and weakness. Peter, in his pride, thought he could stand. He thought he could face the temptations. But Jesus already told him, you're not going to be able to stand. You're not going to be able to do it. And Peter's like, I got it. No, I got this. I got this. Rather, what Peter should have been doing, what Peter, James, and John together, in the words of Bunyan, they should have been having a good conversation that night and keeping each other awake. They should have been fighting for one another rather than taking a break. And what a reminder it is. Sort of an unrelated point, but it is related. That physical exhaustion often leads to sin. For our workaholic brothers and sisters in the room, let that be a reminder to you that when you work yourself to exhaustion, you are prime meat for Satan. He is ready to sift you like wheat. And so we need our rest physically as a means to protect ourselves. And alertness to sin. So we must be alert to sin. And I think the exhortation here, that, and we're going to hear it right now from Peter, 1 Peter 5.8. And I love, look friends, if you just read the Gospels, and you go read what Peter wrote, <laughs> you, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, you just understand a little bit more of what Peter was going through here, and how he's trying to teach you. Listen to what Peter wrote. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Be sober-minded. Be humble and be watchful. Do you not think Peter learned his lesson? Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Do you not think Peter knew that now? In hindsight? Spirit gave him inspiration there. We must recognize then our own weaknesses. We must recognize them. We must be alert to them. We must know where the the traps are laid before our souls. We must know them. We must bring them out to the light and show God. Look, I fall here all the time. I need your help. Shine the light of your grace in this way. And so we must know weakness. Oh, brothers, I pray. Brothers and sisters, I pray you would pray. Right there, just pray. God, show me my temptations. Let me not be dumb to temptation. Where, are, where am I being tripped up at? Where are the potholes in my soul that I keep stepping in? Lord, help me. Show me my weakness. And so we ask, what are our weaknesses? And think through what those are. Moving quickly, number two, depend on God in prayer. It begins in this passage when Jesus' greatest need, his greatest need of, his greatest hour of need was before him. What did he do? He prayed. Sit here while I pray. Jesus is an example to you and I of what to do in the midst of trouble. In the midst of temptation. Do you not think Jesus was tempted? Clearly he was. He was tempted to abandon the plan that the Father had for him. He was ready to quit. He was ready to go home. Take me home, Lord. I'm ready to quit. No, not your will. No, I'm going to pray. I'm going to give myself to you. And so what we understand then from this passage is that you cannot face temptation alone. The Spirit is willing. Look, you can... You ever been on those, one of those all-night drivers? Driving all night long? Doesn't matter what you can do. You can roll the window down. You can stick your head out the window. You can drink all the caffeine in the world. You can have the music blaring. What happens? Fall asleep. You can do all. You want the, flat, the spirit. I want to be alive. I don't want to die, Lord. I don't want to die here on the side of the road. Keep me awake. But my flesh is weak. And it's just a reminder to us that we need God. We must depend on God in prayer. We must give ourselves regularly to prayer. We we must not just take prayer casually. Lightly. Think, ah, when I get to it. No, it must rise to the prominence it deserves. Like your car is dependent on gas to move. Brothers and sisters, we are dependent on prayer to move spiritually. To guard our hearts and to protect our lives. And so in regular time, go to God. Asking God, Lord, expose my weaknesses. Pray that He would strengthen you in the midst of trials. Pray He would blind your eyes from the temptations around you. Most importantly, pray that God would expose sin in your heart. That you would not allow it to hide any longer. Jesus suffered the sorrow of sin and the agony of God's wrath so that you could be set free from sin. Not so that you could go play with sin all day long and every week, but so that you could be set free from sin and temptations. So that you might have an example before Him of how to follow Christ, follow God faithfully in prayer. I want to conclude with these words. Much more could be said about prayer. I wish I had time. But I want to take and heed this advice from J.C. Ryle, an Anglican pastor in England in the 18th century, a helpful brother. Listen to his reflections on this particular passage. He writes, Are we true Christians, and would we keep our souls awake? Then let us never forget to watch and pray. We must watch like soldiers. We are upon enemies' ground. We must always be on our guard. We must fight and daily fight a war of daily warfare. The Christian's rest is yet to come. We must pray without ceasing regularly, habitually, carefully, and at stated times. We must pray as well as watch and watch as well as pray. Watching without praying is self-confidence and self-conceit. Praying without watching is enthusiasm and fantasism. The man who knows his own weakness and knowing it both watches and prays. This man is the one who will be held up and not allowed to fall. Friends, may we hear our Savior's warning this morning to watch and pray. Let's pray. Gracious God in heaven, as we reflect on your word this morning. Oh, our prayer is that our sin is laid bare before us. That we would bring it into the light today. That you would not allow us to hide our sin any longer. But the beam of your grace would shine upon. You, that we would see it for all of its ugliness, for all of its shame and sorrow. And know confidently that Christ has dealt the blows upon His own body that that sin deserved. And know confidently this morning that we are forgiven. That not one drop of Your wrath remains. Our prayer this morning, if one is here that needs Christ, that is yet to turn from sin and trust, that You would, by Your Spirit, regenerate His soul that he might have faith, that she might have trust in Christ and turn from sin and trust in Jesus. Father, our prayer is that you would give us the resolve to be watchful over our own souls. That Father, that we would give ourselves to regularly habitual times of prayer. That we would not neglect this great means before us the means of your grace to build us and to keep us from sin. We give you the glory and praise for our good and your glory we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. As we conclude this morning,